Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Sour and Sass. I'm so excited to be here today. I got a little bit of echoes out of obviously nowhere here, Ryan. <laughs> I can, I'm not sure. Let me see. Is this better? I think we're better now. So welcome to the show, everybody. Audio is not going crazy. I'm super excited to be joined by the CEO of Saros, uh, Simon Berg. Welcome to the show, Simon. Thank you very much for having me. No, this is exciting. Thank you for uh, making the time. Now, can you tell everyone maybe uh, who's tuning in a little bit about Saros before we dive in? Sure. 10-year-old uh, business. Uh, at least that was the theory. Um, but now uh, 260 people, um, over 700 customers, and we are a no-code platform, one of the early folks in that space that's helping market as great, we describe as uh, rich, experiential content to better engage with their customers. I love that. I love that. Now, but I'm going to want to take a different path maybe than normally on an interview. And I want to go into more like specifics. Um, Cause I think there's like in the specifics, there's content we can't find in blog posts because, well, you and I don't really probably write that many blog posts anymore. And <laughs> why do you offer services as a SaaS business um, at a high level? One, I'm very curious about it. Like what does it do for you as CEO and, and why focus on, baking the services in instead of maybe a partnership directory like other, you know, SaaS platforms. Well, that's, there's a, there's a layer, there's a lot of layers to that. Um, when we initially built the business, um, we were very, very disruptive in the early stages and we we're trying to shift the market. Yeah. So an undeniable need at that time to, you know, not only provide the technology, but also provide the inspiration and the execution where it made sense. And I want to be clear for anyone that's listening to this or watching this, um, we have a services team now. It represents 12% of our customers that leverage it in a way. Not like we're a, um, you know, a, a tech-enabled agency by any stretch, but we do provide that service to our customers. It's trending more and more and more these days to be more of a consultancy, more strategy, more how to think and behave this way, why you should, um, rather than pure play execution on form. Very few of our customers now are using us in that way, and that's just slowly changed. The market's warmed up, and they know what, they know what they're trying to do. Yeah, that's what I was curious, because I didn't know, like, because like, there's multiple ways of seeing it, right? It's like, it's like there's one way, because like we have a, a partner, uh, ClearBitX, um, and their platform is a lot like you, which is very new in that sense. And so I would imagine Garrett, I don't want to break it to you, but you're already. Audio, audio nightmare. Audio, audio nightmare. Well, you're killing me. On me. All right, how about now? You're no audio nightmare. More echoey. Audio nightmare. It's not working today. Well, you know what's interesting, Simon? I think this is like my 50th one, and I've never had an audio issue. All right. How are we doing now? <laughs> Bad luck. You better? You're better. Yeah, you're much better. <laughs> okay. Awesome. Well, because I was curious, like, I didn't know, because like, part of me is like, do SaaS companies design it to then increase, let's say, adoption and thus retention? Or sometimes SaaS companies designing services to hit a certain P&L goal on their EBITDA? And that's why I was always curious, like, is it designed in because we want we want to maybe increase our advertising and we don't know if we can hit our CAC goals 
with just our SaaS product, the long story adding service. Like, do you see what I'm saying? Like, I was just curious yeah, if it's designed. Not, not very much, not that. I mean, as a, okay. as a CEO and as a, I try to do what is basically right, we have a purpose at Seros. We think creativity matters. We're trying to help our cast be more digital space in uh, at this point in our uh, trajectory. And that was the right thing to help support them in that quest. It was, I'm never driven by the numbers in that regard. It's the way yeah. to successfully run a business, in my opinion. It's like, what needs to, what do I, we're trying to unlock creativity. We're trying to get people to be more creative. And, um, you know, in the other, very much something we needed. And now it's something we need. We provide it. Customers leverage it. But predominantly now it's like, help me understand why and how I should do this rather than do it for me. It's, you know, it's teach them yeah. how now rather than fishing for them most of the time no i like that i was that's what i was a little curious right because like the whole it's i found it ironic because the premise of no code is you can do it yourself and when you add the services right i know that had to be something you juggled in your head is like by saying we offer services we're almost subconsciously implying it's not that easy right and so that's that like game you're like playing with your positioning statement versus your reality right so that's why i was so curious on it now i have this opinion and I've never actually got to ask a CEO about it, so I want to hear what you think. The login in the top of the menu, it's this valuable real estate that we could use for maybe a top of funnel offer for someone who's maybe not ready to take a sales action but wants something else. Yet we're using it as this valuable real estate for new business instead of throwing it in our footer or something like that for our customers. Like, What's the thought process that goes into like the mind when designing that login button in the top of the menu? I'm so curious, actually. That's really funny. I wish I had a great answer for you, Garrett. I don't have a great answer. Uh, it's one. It's one of those decisions that was made somewhere along the line in the history of the company, and it's not uncommon to do it. So yeah, everyone does it. That's why I'm so like, why? I, like, I, mean, I mean, I'm sure I'm on with a, a you know more data driven mindset with some deep meaningful on it, but um, I don't know. Maybe it explains we are a form subconsciously to. You know, it's like you don't get confused with form. Um, I guess it's a friendly way to trusting customers that I go to your destination and you're including me. I can go from there. But deep thought into it, limited, really limited. <laughs> no, I love it. I, I, by the way, I've asked a couple of people this and no one's ever gave me a real response. So I don't know. I think we all just do it because everyone yeah. does it. Everyone does it. <laughs> You'll find that as we speak today, I, I don't lie. I, if I know, I'll tell you. If I don't know, I'll be like, oh, we just did that. And I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I was obviously curious about it. Now, it is sour and sass, Simon. So, are you ready for some sour candy? I'm in, yeah. Uh, by the way, I love sour candy, so this is a win for me. Okay, that's good, because someone needs to win on the show. I hate this stuff. Are you ready? Uh-huh. Let's do this. Okay. Oh, yeah, these I'm are like, big. Oh, these are real. Yeah, yeah. No, because I'm like, you know, and over here, it's 9 in the morning, so I'm like, just finished my coffee. It's like coffee mouth and orange juice. It's like coffee mouth and sour candy, you know? And I told you, I'm hungover, so <laughs> just, what, just what I need. I actually went out and got – I went out and uh, watched the Laker game with my co-founder and my best friend, so we had a little fun ourselves. Now – your product feels like it's made for self-onboarding. Like every part of it, when I look at it, reminds me of all these other no-code, like landing page builders or just all these different things, right? That all do self-onboarding. What? And I think that's the future. Like genuinely, I think it's a way to better monetize ads. You can still have a more value-driven, like because 
whether it's self-onboarding or a demo, I'm still trying to get someone's information and I'm going to still send them to an inbound SDR. So to me, request a demo, you fill out the form, you don't get anything, open an account, you get something. I want to have a higher value, increase my conversion rate, increase my activation for my channels. You guys are choosing not to do that. I'm really curious, like what went into it as the CEO around like deciding not to do self-onboarding? Um. Well, we're, we're relatively old, right? We're 10 years old. Um, and um, when we started out, what we were doing was, like I said at the beginning, disruptive. And it was, we, we made a decision that, that we were going to move, <clears throat> going to be an enterprise platform of some description, you know, mm -hmm. some, somewhere in that zone. And we also walked the fine line between an easy platform to use, but powerful. And it's very difficult. Yeah especially back then years ago yeah. to get people through that process. And while the platform is very simple to use, most graphics will get around it very, very quickly. Yeah. We, uh, we started out in that unit, um, uh, you know, not, not people straight in and accessing the platform made a pivot around five years ago to go to pilot. So we offer a pilot now, a pilot. Yep. Um, and a fairly robust funnel and or process that, you know, helps customers be successful. It's again, it's back to all theory. We want them to be successful and we want them to be engaged and we want them to do well with the platform. So we yeah. don't offer that yet. It's always been an, an aspiration of mine to end a position where we can do more of that. And we have yeah. a product right now in our product lockup yeah. that is entirely free um, and so completely self serve. And you can get to value on that in six seconds. I mean, really quick. Yeah. Um, but a complex platform like Saros that is. Powerful is probably a better word. Yeah, it's it would be remiss of us to let them in and 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 find them, you know, not really understanding the value. So we've we've that way. I don't know if it'll always be like that just for the moment. Yeah. It serves us very well. Yeah, I think then a lot of them. If I kind of distill what you communicated, there's a mental model. What I'm applying is the front end of it, and you're essentially saying the back end of it. In other words. The, I think maybe, and this is the honest stuff about product-led growth I don't think a lot of people talk about, is it, if it hurts your adoption, does it actually lower your LTV, which then intrinsically actually lowers your LTV CAC ratio, so you can't spend as much, even though you have better activation. You might have better activation on the top, right, that access to the platform, mm -hmm. but you might not actually flow through better. And so I do think what you're talking about is that problem we all struggle with, right? And a lot of us who historically built companies – we went in all, all in on sales. We have great sales orgs that add a lot of EBITDA from value selling, right? Because I don't, you, you can't really value sell on product like growth at the same time, right? So it's kind of this like catch 22. Um, what other issues do you see of like other organizations like yourself who have a legacy product that is theoretically, like when I look at it and I, you know, I'm managing 90 plus SaaS companies, all mid-market to enterprise, millions of dollars to spend. You're built for it. But like, what's the thing for these legacy companies that are thinking about it and why not? Like, is there anything else to it that I should be aware of? Let's say as a consultant on the outside trying to it's recommend really, it. It's actually a really good, it's a really good question. It's legacy. It is a little bit of a legacy for us, but we're a hybrid in some regards, right? We're not a traditional enterprise business. We have a pilot, so you can get access yeah. to the, um, the 30 to 45 days with a full suite of support. And that's, wow. you know, launch teams and uh, account management and stress all available to you yeah. for 
or three thousand dollars for for that month, um, or you know, depending on discounts, but you know, around that number, it's a tremendous yeah. amount of value um, that we provide in that period of time, and there isn't an easy way that I've found yet to replicate that value produce and we are in the business of trying to make our customers successful we're not in the business of trying to hack our way to growth in a selfish way we care about the fact that we're trying to help be creative if i find a way yet to achieve the same impact um and the same level of this and the same same level of support self-serve i don't want to be a guy that says oh you know we have 10 million people signing up many of them are disappointed confused and upset and kind of understand it and it filters down and we get to the same results or maybe slightly more, but we've disappointed and fouled miserably on, 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 you know, on that mess. It doesn't work for me, but I continue to build ways for us to do that. And one of the final ways that we've actually been successful was in experiencing freemium slash, you know, super fast value or time to value um, in a different product that's adjacent. So markup tool that helps you mark up digital content, whether it be a JPEG, a PDF, or a Saros experience, or a website, it's agent to us. It's lubricant to us. It helps. A good foot in the t- toe in the water are trying it out. Try reverse the fact of the wedge, which is what Saros is. You know, it's a powerful tool. Into a, you know, I've not succeeded. I haven't quit yet. I love that. No, no. And I, I love where your head's up. And I think actually that goes to my next question. So, I don't have never got to ask this to a CEO of a SaaS company, but we do this all the time. What's the integration plan for chart blocks? So, um, you know what no, I look at, right? It's still running on chart blocks, initial domain. And like, just from a marketing standpoint, like what's that timeline? How do you think about an acquisition and integration? Because we have a lot of clients right now where we're partnering with the marketing board, but I don't have that exposure, let's say to the executive team where there's a ton of M&A going on in the SaaS space. And so we're constantly integrating these i'd love to hear from your perspective when you buy it like how fast do you want to integrate it like kind of where's your head at when you're thinking about that as a ceo it's actually another good question and um you know i think of it through chart blocks but also markup so you know chart block is a very small acquisition quite a while back and and markup is a you know a new product we built and um i'm trying someone said we need we need to own all of us, because we're trying, we're trying to get to a point where if an idea exists in the world to produce a piece of content with a purpose, and then there's ideation, and then uh, conceptual conceptual stuff, then there's the sort of creation, then the iteration, then the publish, and then the analyze. That's the spectrum. And uh, some of the team said, "Yeah, we need to own each space." And I said, "No, no, no. We need to be present in each space and adding value in each space over time. But we don't necessarily need to own it. Nor do they have to be so tightly coupled that they can't exist in their own right." So we're trying to create an ecosystem over time of valuable products that you can engage with. Some, which is markup times enterprise, which would be the studio as you know it from from our you know from before. In about we're trying to get to a point where each of these assets is valuable in its own right as a point solution, probably with a free component, building towards maybe a paid component of that smaller tool that's valuable to a user, and then over time valuable to team, and over time valuable to enterprises. And I think of acquisitions, certainly tool-based acquisitions like that, 
through that lens of, of getting them into the masses, giving value for free, driving them for an individual, and then ultimately towards an enterprise. And that needs loose coupling. Can't couple them too tightly. That's interesting, Simon. Though. So when you say loose coupling, right? So, so I'm doing something similar, right? I, like I'm launching new business units right now. And conceptually, a lot of it, right, is let's say I take a sales platform, right? And I start to look at my top accounts and I say, cool, how can I increase maybe my share of wallet at that account level? And so normally, in my mind, I would try to then create as much of an integrated platform as possible and integrate those products to an overarching positioning statement for my platform as a whole. And then each of my products within my platform has a positioning statement that I can easily drive variable revenue and cross-sell, which then helps me hit EBITDA targets at like if I run P&L in every business unit. And so conceptually, what's the financial value is loose coupling at like a P&L level compared to what I'm communicating? Well, it, 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 I don't know if you saw, did you see Elon, crazy man Musk, um, be interviewed something five months ago, four months ago, and he was, he was, he's, he's much more thoughtful than me with bigger, certainly a much, <laughs> much bigger business by an order of magnitude. But one of the things he said was we need to spend less time in boardrooms and less time in Excel sheets and less PowerPoint and more time building value, creating better products. And that's what I focus on because he said the thing will profit is really just a output from value. And if you're creating value, the profit and the, you know, it's, it's a mathematical equation. Ultimately, if you're yeah. creating some, bringing something to the world, it's more valuable to those than the effort that you put in. By definition, it's valuable, at which point, yes, dollars and money will come. And I try very, very hard not to think of my business as a PL, which my investors who may see this would say, is he off his mind? No, because it comes. If I'm intrigued creating value, yeah. it is inevitable that people will use money or yeah. cash, or Bitcoin, or either. Eventually, I would trade my value for your asset at that the right time. And as long as you can create something that is more than the effort that you put in, you're winning. Ultimately, people get obsessed with PLs and EBITDA, and you know, I'm not suggesting you can't ignore that. But are you creating the greatest product you can create, and is it providing value to the people that want it, and is it towards the purpose of your organization? which for us is unlocking creativity. If it is, it's a good idea. Yeah, I love that song. I actually literally just, it's so funny. So I, when I go to my CFO, I kind of have this statement of how we run our finance. So I said, the best way to create profit is by increasing value, not cutting costs. Exactly. And so, because I think cutting costs is a short-sighted perspective that doesn't help you differentiate your product. So you can't take, like you can, like selling a product that's pursuing EBITDA is hell. Because you can't really invest in a differentiation, so you can't create value. And so the, the real margin you get at the gross margin level you can't create because no one's willing to pay more for yours than anyone else's. Because like I have this belief that people don't pay more for products that are better. They pay more for products that are different. And so the only way you can create essentially like value in a marketplace is differentiation. And so really, really interesting perspective. Now, one of the things we talked about offline, and I think it's really relevant today, is – you, when you hire a CMO, you communicate that she has a traditional background. And what I think is really interesting is if you're on Twitter, let's say, and you see this, like the tide, there's this whole thought process amongst SaaS companies that, you know, the traditional CMO is dead and, you know, the CMO of tomorrow is the director of demand gen today. I'm not sure. I actually 100% agree because I started as an SEO. I kind of got into paid media. 
And the better I've gotten at digital, the more I've realized how important traditional is and how much we forgot. And so I'm actually teaching myself the basics of traditional marketing and I'm seeing way more success than I am from digital, ironically, in my own business. And so I'd love to hear from your perspective, right? As the guy who was CEO, CEO acting as CMO, what were you looking for in a CMO and kind of why did you go this traditional route? Well, first thing I'll say, when I, when I say the term traditional, I mean, traditional b 2 marketer, so very focused on digital, don't get me wrong, but, you know, true in the sense that, you know, understands the fundamentals takes a marketing function from the top to the bottom it's you know how important it integrates with it is for it to integrate with sales etc so just as a point of clarification you know uh, jamie who's the, who's the new cmo cmo is traditionally in the sense she has a traditional b2b software background um not so much of a traditional in the sense that traditional old school now at that what was i looking for the answer to that was somebody that made additional balance to my organization and i think you know you talked about doing these things and tradition, progression and tradition. You know, that's, that's, that's life, that's yin and yang, that's politics, everything. No world exists where you ignore the history and the tradition and what, what brought us to where we are today. Ignoring that at your peril, in my opinion. Hanging on to that and refusing to progress and change, do that at your peril. It's about, and it's about understanding what worked, why it worked, how we got here, you know, what has been traditionally believed to be the right thing to do, understand, connecting with it, in a progressive, new, different ways to do things, and measuring what makes most sense in a balanced way. And Jamie provided for us massive amount of balance in the sense with her expertise from a traditional B2B software point of view. She's already adding value. She's been with us seven, 10 days. And I yeah. can see her excitement around something aggressive in different ways we've approached things, but also the values by saying, you realize that this is what's been done traditionally and you're not doing that. That's a thing that you should be doing. Yeah. No, I get what you're saying. I guess I want us to maybe pull it back a little deeper for those people listening. Like, what, and I'll get a specific question then for you. So what skills do you think the current, let's say VP of digital or director of digital doesn't realize they don't have that's actually keeping them from being a CMO? Like, what, what's that gap? Because I actually think there is a real gap there. And I'd love to kind of hear from maybe a, someone's perspective who was acting as CMO. Like, what's the gap of the person who just lives in this, like, optimization world? You know what I'm talking Like, they, that's the thing of digital, right? It's this yeah. framework and mentality of optimization and less around creativity, a less imagination, less exactly. values. Absolutely. And it's more just, yeah, so what, what do you think it is? I think it is, I think it is uh, you know, if you're thinking about everything through the lens of data and optimization, you are forgetting something fundamental, which is you are a human. Your company is manned and staffed by human, humans, yeah. selling to humans. And humans, unfortunately, are not binary. They don't run on ones and zeros. And there is a lot of subconscious um, emotional decision-making that goes on. And providing value and connecting humans in an authentic, engaging way is valuable. And not every idea has to be backed up by data. Instinct be be leveraged, and instinct is there. It's just inside the trillions of neurons in your brain. Leveraging that, connecting with people on a human level, team members included, and customers is really, really important. Then, of course, you layer on systems and processes and data insights and leverage that back to balance. And if you can bring those two together, you're going to end up with something that is real, authentic, connected, engaging, 
optimized, data-driven, and systematic when it needs to be. In either direction, and you fail. But managing your line, you know, to, to follow that, weave that line is really difficult because people like to pick a side. It's all about the data, okay? Or it's all about the idea, right? It's like, no, it's both. Everything is like that, politics included. It's like, it's no. No, it's 100%. Not. No, I love it. And, all right, are you ready for the next piece of sour candy? Oh, yeah, mate, yeah. I was actually thinking last that last one. one was disappointing. I, I was expecting more. Okay, so here comes the second one. This is the killer. Oh, no. Oh, God. I, the first layer is real. Yeah, that's terrible. Mm. I can't talk one second. Mm -hmm. Got it. So, I know it's so bad. I let's have an honest conversation about data for one second as we wrap this up. I think there's this. So, my background was econ. Um, and when you really study data and you try to get good at data, and I'm definitely not, by the way, I found that the deeper I dive into it, I've never actually got data that I was 100% confident was true. And I started to learn that I it was more important to me for, for me to be data aware than data driven. Mm -hmm. And I kind of got to this point where I think a lot of people who are data driven um, mistake correlation with causation. And so they start to say, because I saw this in my marketing, this means that. And the second you say, I see this and I think it means that you're actually doing causation instead of correlation. And I think we make a lot of mistakes. Is there a, is there like an honest way of looking at data? Like that you think for everyone here who wants to be data driven, like how, how do you think they could create a more human, more honest, a more realistic way of approaching data so that it doesn't become this roadblock? Cause I see marketers daily and CEOs daily, trying this like utopic pursuit of getting data right and they forget to actually create value. If that makes sense. And there's this like weird game. So like, how should we treat data in your mind and our businesses and in our marketing? I, I have, um, don't ignore it. Um, never follow it blind ever. That is really stupid. Um, yeah. And use it in the way that you kind of just let it inform your decision, add it to the calculus. Yeah. And I think, so many people might I mean, have conversations I've had with someone where they'll run a survey or they'll yeah, run a survey and get the data back and say, okay, it says it should be blue. All right. Just a second. I mean, I said it again. When people say that's just your instinct, I say to them, I've been alive for 45 years. I've been in this industry for 30 years. 30 years. Believe that or not. I started at 16. During that time, I have been alive and actively engaged in creating technologies, being part of production, being a designer, being a retouch. I've been in that for 29. During those moments, trillions of neurons and hundreds of thousands of interactions and moments are happening in my head. So when I say to you, I have an instinct that we should do X, and folks say, well, there's no data to back it up. I, I always say there's no data in an Excel sheet, but there is data in my brain that's driving me to conclude this. Your Excel sheet has 15 data points. I'm not ignoring 
the data in your Excel sheet. I'm just doing it to the trillion I already have. And that's yep. the thing people forget is you should use it as a as an additional data point in the calculus, not definitive answer. I like that. And then the now the pushback to that is obviously, well, Simon, then, you know, how do we know essentially what the criteria is then for managers below you if they want to report and align themselves to you? If the way you decide is simply based on what you perceive instinctually, how do we then spread decision makings below the CEO level at the VP level and the director level if decisions are simply based on that? So how do you think about scaling decision making across the order? This is a problem I have, right? Like, how do I push my authority down to give me the ability to focus on the bigger vision without a randomized decision-making function in the organization? Like, how do we push authority down then? Like, because it's honestly, this is like one of the hardest parts for me. Well, Gary, Gary I'll tell you, first thing first is I don't push my authority anywhere. <laughs> That's the first thing. Because uh, my authority is not what makes the place work. It's the humans. But um, yeah. what, what I will do is I will take accountability for the decisions that I make. And that's something I clearly do. The buck stops here yeah. for sure. Yeah. And I think autonomy and mastery is much more powerful. And in order to create autonomy and mastery below you in an organization, you need to be clear about your purpose. Your business must have a clear purpose. The genuine, if not something you dreamed up at an offsite because you felt you did. And this creativity, I give us creativity and it matters. I think it's going to help self I mean is, and is, is one of the most important things in the in the you know, you know the human condition that purpose is important beyond purpose a vision where are we trying to go in as abstract tangible way as you can possibly articulate articulate that and repeat that over and over again in words in pictures in anything you can do to say this is where we're trying to go folks I your leader in inverted commas will take accountability for the decisions that we make I want you to be creative I want you to be autonomous I want you to be masterful and I want you to use data to inform the decisions into the North Star that is the purpose and the direction and the, and the vision. If you can do that well and communicate that with team number one, which is your executive team, and they can communicate that with team one, which is their own team, yep. away from politics and infing, and you get back to authenticity and building value, the rest takes care of itself. I love that. I absolutely love that. And that creates a hell of a lot more scalable system, right? When you just focus yeah, on the community. Actually, you know what it does? It creates two key things, which most people think exist on two sides of a wall. Success and happiness. They don't have to be on two sides of a wall. They can be together, and you can make your team successful and your company successful while you and your team are happy if you behave in that way. But most people don't want to do it because it's hard. <laughs> it's not easy to, you know, to manufacture or to structurally push out, and it requires courageous honesty and authenticity and people don't want to do that they want to hide use data and point to things they can hide behind <laughs> i love it i love it simon thank you so much for being on the show this has been amazing um for anyone wants to follow along with you and your journey uh what's the best way for them to do that um that's an interesting question um i don't have much of a social media presence because i have got an influencer <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I, I, I could tell you my Instagram handle and it would be pictures of my children and my family. It's perfect. Well, thank it's you the, so much. It's the, the underscore Simon Berg. On it. There it is. Follow him on Instagram, everybody. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, Simon. And uh, this has been amazing. Uh, really appreciate it. And best of luck at Saros. 
Thanks very much, Gary. Really enjoyed it. Thanks, pal.